these books. But today we're going to go to 1 Peter, and 1 Peter is five chapters long, uh, and it's not a very long book at all. You can sit down and read it in just a matter of a few minutes, but it's filled with really good stuff and things that we'll kind of talk about next week when we go in detail. But let's look and at the beginning of our uh, paper here today that we have at our, this is really our who, what, when, where's, and why's. The content of the letter. What is 1 Peter about? Well, 1 Peter is a letter of encouragement, and it's a letter of encouragement to Christians who are undergoing suffering. And this is the theme that we see all throughout these epistles. We've seen, and there are several themes we could just kind of go back to and see them over and over again. Uh, The idea of, 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 of enduring through suffering, because the first Christians suffered great persecution. They suffered persecution as they preached the gospel, as they tried to live the gospel, because the essence of the way of life of the gospel was in opposition to the essence of the way of life in the world that they had come out of, whether it be the Jewish world for the Jewish Christians or the pagan world uh, with its many gods and uh, its cultures. And then once they've come out of the world, then they start suffering persecution. So that's one of the major themes. The other major theme is this issue of the Jew and Gentiles worshiping together as one group of people. When you have people from different cultures uh, that are trying to exist in one new relationship uh, that's based upon not who they are, but based upon who Christ is. So some of these things we see over and over again, and 1 Peter's no difference. So 1 Peter is a letter of encouragement to Christians who are undergoing suffering, instructing them on how to respond Christianly to their persecutors. How are we to respond to persecutors? How does Peter tell these believers how they are to respond? And then urging them to live lives worthy of their calling. Basically, what Peter is trying to say to the believers here is encourage them in their persecution, is to show them how to respond to their persecution, which how they respond is actually based on how Jesus responded when he was persecuted when Jesus was falsely accused, and then that they are to live their lives in such a way that it will not bring reproach upon them or the message of the gospel. And they're to live, even in the midst of persecution, in front of their persecutors, they're to live as lights for God and for the kingdom shining in the world. Uh, The letter here is attributed to the apostle Peter, Uh, the author of it, written by Silas, um, who traveled with Paul sometimes. It was written around 64 to 65 AD. Uh, Peter was in Rome when he wrote this letter, and he refers to Babylon. And Babylon is a name that we see here pop up. Of course, there was ancient Babylon that we read about in the Old Testament with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. By the time the New Testament comes around, Babylon's name is synonymous with the Roman Empire. And we see that mentioned here, as well as we will see that mentioned uh, in greater detail in the book of Revelation. So when Peter refers to Babylon, he's referring to Rome as a place of exile. And we'll talk about that in a moment as well. Uh, And this was written probably at the beginning or kind of around the beginning of the persecution of the Christians by Nero. Nero rose to power in Rome. 
And at first, Nero uh, didn't cause much issues and then kind of snapped and went crazy. And then he started persecuting the Christians. He almost burnt down his, his whole city and blamed it on the Christians. And then intense persecution broke out among the Christians. So kind of the feeling here is they're suffering persecution, but it's not the, the hard persecution that would come soon for the Christians uh, who were in the province of Rome. Now, the recipients, who was it written to? This is an interesting uh, thought. We read in James, if you remember in James, James begins this way, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, to the 12 tribes. And we mentioned that James, who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, James had written to these 12 tribes who were scattered, who had left Jerusalem because of persecution and had gone into the cities and the countries surrounding Israel. Now, Peter, his introduction sounds very similar, but we'll see a difference. Uh, Peter begins in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God and the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience of Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling of His blood. So this is an interesting introduction because it sounds very Jewish. And what you find is Peter will use very Jewish language, even describing the believers, which will lead some people to conclude that Peter is really speaking to Jewish people, kind of like James was, who were in these areas. The issue is there were Jewish people in these areas, but the majority of the people in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and in these five areas in Asia, they were mostly Gentiles. But yet Peter continues to use this Jewish covenant language when describing the believers. So it's written to the God's elect exiles scattered in the dispersion in the five providences that were in Asia. So my personal opinion is, is that most of the believers that Peter's writing to are Gentile believers, but there's always a mixture. There's always a mixture. So there are Jewish believers as well that are here. But here's what we have to understand about the language being used is that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, we find Israel as God's chosen covenant people, His elect. When you come over to the New Testament, you still find Israel being God's elect, being God's chosen people, being God's covenant people. But yet now, it's based upon the condition of Jesus Christ. So Paul talks about that out of the nation of Israel, there was the remnant that he called it, that had received Jesus. And for Paul, the remnant of faithful, believing Jewish people who are now believers, that they are the true Israel of God. They are living in the promises that God had made to their ancestors. You know, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he says, this is that which was spoken by our prophets to our fathers. And it's God fulfilling his promises to Israel. But now these promises are fulfilled in Christ. And what Paul shows us is you have this group of 
believing Jewish people who are called the remnant, and they're receiving the promises. And then you have these believing Gentiles who Paul describes as being grafted into the people of God. And in Ephesians, he says that they become fellow heirs of the promises. And Paul uses the term that the Israel of God. So when Peter's referring to the elect exiles, even though he's using Old Testament terminology, he's speaking of the believers, of the covenant people of God here in the New Testament. When he talks to them about being a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a spiritual house, those were words used for Israel. But now those words are redefined in the context of the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles in one body by the cross. And when you say things like that, there's a theological word that gets thrown around, and it's called replacement theology, which replacement theology actually says that the church replaced Israel. Well, what the New Testament teaches is not replacement theology. It teaches placement theology, that God has placed both Jew and Gentile in one body by the cross to receive the promises that God had made to Israel. But the fulfillment is now found in Jew and Gentile together in one body. So therefore, Peter uses this elect language, exile language, the language of you know, being a temple, a language of a royal priesthood. The same languages that's used for Israel is now used here for uh, these believing exiles who are now in a Roman province who feels that they are in exile. And what is the exile? The exile is when Israel was out of the promised land and they were living in a foreign land under foreign influence. And these Roman Christians, now that they've come out of, of, of the, the world around them and now they're separated unto God, they're still living in the midst of the Roman Empire. And they feel as if they're living in exile, in the midst of their persecutors and oppressors. And that's the heart of what Peter is saying here. So, so I believe you know, these recipients that he's writing to are majority Gentiles, but also believing Jews who are now God's covenant people by the blood of Jesus Christ. The occasion of why this letter was written, um, the concern over an outbreak of local persecution, uh, social scorn, shaming, slander, and stigma uh, that some newer believers were experiencing as a direct result of their faith in Christ. Again, this probably isn't the setting of the whole empire persecuting, but just this local area at the beginning of the persecution of Nero. And that's what prompted Peter to write this letter, was the believers suffering persecution, especially newer believers, because he's going to ground them in gospel truths. He's going to ground them in who Jesus is. He's going to ground them in who they are based upon who Jesus is, who they are as the people of God. So he's encouraging them uh, to stay faithful to their walk as well. Some of the emphasis here that we find in the letter of 1 Peter Suffering for the sake of righteousness. And suffering for the sake of righteousness should not surprise us. Because number one, Jesus told his disciples that this would happen. And it is a norm in the New Testament. So suffering for the sake of righteousness should not surprise us. And it also tells us how uh, believers should submit to unjust suffering the way Christ did. That the way believers face suffering is the way that Christ faced suffering, and He is our 
example. Christ suffered on our behalf to free us from sin. Again, there's a lot of focus on Jesus. There's, there's probably more focus on Jesus in 1 Peter than there was in, in, in James. You know, we talked about James being very practical. Peter is a great blend, and I've mentioned it down here under the influences, but I'll go ahead and say it. But Peter is a great blend of the theology of, of Paul and the practicality of James. And he kind of brings them both uh, together in a beautiful way here. But Christ's suffering on behalf on our behalf to free us from sin, and the emphasis of God's people should live righteously at all times, and especially in the face of hostility. And ultimately, our hope for the future is based on the certainty of Christ's resurrection, that even though they're persecuted, even though they feel like exiles in a foreign land, there is still hope, and there's hope because there is a risen Savior. This next paragraph, I want to read this paragraph. I took this out of one commentary. It says, Peter encourages the believers to hold fast, stressing the divine verdict about their identity. They may be disparaged by their neighbors, but in God's eyes, they are precious, royal, and holy. I I love that because We can see ourselves as one way so many times, but how we see ourselves should really be how God sees us. So even though they were seen as a group who nobody wanted around and they persecuted them to God, they were precious, royal, and holy. It says, they enjoy the promises given in Israel's sacred history. They have experienced a new birth, purification, and redemption. They look forward to a future salvation with an imperishable inheritance. Peter further urges his readers to give outsiders no reason for malice. They should rest in their baptized identity as Christians. Jesus died for them, leaving them an example. The letter's emphatic teaching of Christ supported by carefully crafted citations of and allusions to the Old Testament, underlines the entire appeal. One may legitimately regard the letter as a kind of Christ-centered exposition on Isaiah, Psalms, and Proverbs, applying Scripture to a Christian audience facing severe hardships. So Peter's grounding them in who they are in Christ, what Jesus has done for them, the example that Jesus has left them. Going back to showing, and even if you look at the example of Israel, when Israel was in exile, and yes, they got in exile because of their own sinfulness, unlike the believers here, but even when Israel was in exile, they had a promise that God was going to restore them. They had a promise that God was still on their side. And for the believers here, even facing persecution, they have the promise that God is still on their side. And because they have a resurrected Savior, they have a hope for deliverance in the future. So that's makes, that makes up this letter of encouragement. Again, the influences. Peter shows the influence of, of the theology of Paul and the ethics of James. And the theme is the submission to Christ, submission to Christ in suffering for him. All right, let's look at our outline. So hopefully you'll take 1 Peter and read through it. You could probably read through this several times this week. Again, when you read through it, think about some of the, um, 
themes that we just talked about and just kind of note those themes, you know, when you see them. And that way you'll be able to kind of trace the, the whole message of what it's saying. Now our outline. The first two verses are the opening of the letter. And we read those earlier. Uh, Peter gives a brief introduction of himself as an apostle of Christ and then goes into his recipients, the elect exiles that are scattered, this time not just around Israel, but are scattered in the area of or in the province of Rome. And his greeting is, may grace and peace be multiplied unto you. As we leave uh, verse number 2 and go to verse number 3, the next section is chapter 1, verse 3, all the way down through chapter 2, verse number 10, and is broken up into two parts. Number one, there is this baraka, this praise, this blessing unto God. It begins in verse number 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have that first blessing and this praise of Jesus and speaking of the salvation of Jesus goes all the way down through verse number 12 of chapter 1. So from 1.3 to 1.12, you have this praise unto God. Then when you pick up in 1.13, going through 2.10, you have the call for God's people to live holy, that they are called to live holy in the world around them. And they're live, they live holy because Christ has made them holy. And that's an important principle in the New Testament, is that we are not holy based upon what we do. We are holy because of what Jesus did for us. He made us holy. He sanctified us. And that empowers us to now live life to live a holy life. Just as I said when we went through the Psalms a couple of weeks ago, you can't live the life of Psalm 1 without the man of Psalm 1. Well, you can't live a holy life without the holiness of Jesus on the inside of you that allows you to live according to the Spirit as someone who has been born again, not of uh, perishing seed, but of imperishable as Peter goes on to talk here. So he challenges them in 113 to 2.10 to live holy as God's people. Then our next major section, beginning with number, uh, verse, chapter number 2, verse number 11, and this is broken up. It says, Beloved, I urge you. And there's a couple of times in there in these breaks that he specifically you know, says, Beloved. So the first section he starts as, Blessed be the God and Father, Uh, The next major section here, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, begins with, Beloved, I urge you. And there are two sections to 2.11 through 4.11. And this is the call, uh, particularized in various settings. Uh, Specifically, these settings are where there is pagan influence. Um, It speaks about the, when, you know, what to do when there's uh, pagan government, what to do if you're a a servant under a pagan master or if you're a wife under a pagan husband. You know, he talks about uh, those areas there going through chapter 3, verse 7. Then in chapter 3, verse 8, the call generalized, again, in the face of hostility. This is suffering for righteousness' sake. And this whole section of chapter 2, 11 through 4, 11 speaks of the life in exile. How do you live as God's people in a hostile world? How do, how, do, how do we live as a hostile world? And, you know, I believe, the, I believe these words are getting more practical every day that we live. 
You know, we have been extremely blessed, even spoiled as a church uh, in America with our freedoms to worship freely without persecution or fear of, of government or, or violence. And we've been very, very blessed. And so a lot of these words, you know, we couldn't really relate to, you know, because, hey, we, we're living on easy street, you know, here in America. And, you know, of course, we would love to live on easy street for the rest of my life and my kid's life and grandkid's life. That would be wonderful. But the fact is, there's no guarantee. These words, if you were to take these words and take them over to China or other communist nations, Russia or in the past, they would mean a lot because the Christians there felt that they were living in exile. They were living in, in nations where governments persecuted them and they were, their churches, if they had, could have a church, could be burned or their houses could be burned by the government at, at any time. So these words mean a lot to people, to Christians in other nations. To us, you know, we've been kind of distant from some of these words. We've taken what we can from them, but, you know, who knows but this is giving us a snapshot into what first century Christianity was like. You know, it wasn't live your best life now and, you know, realize your potential. It was live faithful in the midst of a world and a culture that hates you. And here's how you do it. And um, not the most encouraging stuff. You know, you're not going to get many amens, you know, when you preach it. But that's, that's the reality for the majority of Christian history throughout the ages. So... They, if, you, if, you, if you start to feel like an uh, exile living in a foreign land, well, the Scripture speaks to that. So, um, the call generalized in the face of hostility. So, chapter 2, 11 through 4, 11 speaks of life in exile. Then when we come to chapter 4, verse 12, down through 5, 11, almost the end of the letter. Again, this is more exhortation to endure suffering and being steadfast in suffering. And there are, you know, some of the themes that are mentioned uh, here talk about stewarding the grace of God that has been given to us and, and not to be surprised when the fiery trial comes our way to test our faith like something strange is happening. You know, Peter says, it's not strange when these trials and persecutions come. He says, I don't think it's something strange when it happens, but he talks about if you suffer as a Christian, you know, don't be ashamed, for it's a privilege to suffer as a Christian because Christ did as well. So chapters 4 and 5 is really an exhortation during their suffering. And then you have the final greetings uh, in verses 12 through 14 of First Peter. So go by that outline uh, as you read it and notice all of those themes. All right, on the back of our paper, just a couple of more words about the overview and then just a few specific things. I didn't even flip my slide, did I? There you go. Sorry for all the people watching online that I didn't uh, flip my slide there. Uh, the overview of First Peter uh, on the back of our page. Uh, after the opening Thanksgiving, uh, it set forth the themes. Again, the themes, salvation hope for the future, suffering, genuine faith, living as holy in the world. Uh, the rest of the letter falls into three parts, which was your uh, three middle sections on your outline, two, three, and four. So that's the three main sections. Part one, the call to holy living with the emphasis on their life together as the people of God. And this is, this is where the imagery of the Old Testament is used. And Peter reassures them that they are God's people by election, whose lives together are to give evidence that they are God's children. So the fact that they're going through persecution and suffering is not a sign of God's 
uh, disapproval of them. It's actually a sign that they are God's people and that nothing that happens to them should shake their faith or make them question that they are God's people. So again, Peter goes back and uses the language of covenant Israel in the Old Testament and applies it to the believers here. So that's part one. Part two focuses primarily on their being uh, God's people for the sake of the pagan world. He begins by urging Christ-like submission in specific settings, as we mentioned, the pagan government, pagan masters, pagan households, in which believers may expect to suffer. He then generalizes this appeal to all believers, specifically when facing suffering for doing good. Again, Christ's death and resurrection serve as the basis for holiness and hope. He concludes by speaking again to their life together as God's people. And then in part three, he puts their suffering into a theological context while urging the elders to lead uh, the others in uh, properly Christian responses to underlying suffering, as well as their relationships to one another. So you have those three major parts in 1 Peter. Now, just a few things about specific advice for reading 1 Peter. Um, notice the words. And this is one thing I like to do when I'm just doing casual reading. You know, when, when you see words pop back up. And there are several words that are used over and over and over again that follows along the themes of 1 Peter. Uh, the vocabulary that 1 Peter tells much of the story and should be watched as you read. These words are suffering. Uh, and he, he throws a Greek word in there for the way of life or their behavior as a Christian. God, Christ, spirit, spiritual, God's will, election, calling, save, salvation, and hope, along with other words that point to the future inheritance or glory. Again, those just reemphasize the major themes, the themes of suffering, you know, living holy and righteous, uh, God calling you and electing you, your salvation, your future hope. Uh, all of this are the repeated themes. A large vocabulary reminding them that they are God's people living as foreigners and strangers, or those in exile in the present world. Uh, for one section of our reading or our text, and that would be uh, through 2.18 through 3.7, uh, it says you need to have a sense of first century uh, household, how a first century household operates in order to appreciate what is urged in 2.18 through 3.7. In the first century Greco-Roman household, the male head of the house was the uh, absolute Lord and Master. In most such households, if he was religious at all, it was customary for the entire household to adopt his religion. But Peter is speaking into the context where some household slaves and the wives of husbands, they've become followers of Christ, even though the husband who was the Lord and the Master of the house was maybe of a different religion. But now you find that those in the house have become followers of Christ. Uh, and he speaks into that situation where those under authority, whether it be government authority, uh, you know, servant and master, or in the household, uh, would be oppressed even in that small context there. He turns around in 3.7 and speaks to the husband and assumes that he and his household uh, have all followed Christ. So there's a little bit of difference there when you read it. You may say, huh? But then, so you'll know what's coming when you read that paragraph. 
Uh, then what propels the letter from beginning to end is their suffering. I know we talk about suffering all the time so far, but that's what Peter talks about in the whole letter. So that's why we do that. Uh, Peter's concern is that they understand their suffering in the larger context of God's saving purposes. That suffering may therefore be understood as in keeping with God's higher purposes, His will. Know that Peter significantly always refers to Christ's redeeming work in terms of his suffering. And this is, and this is something I haven't really popped out until, you know, preparing for this, is that uh, Peter refers to Christ's redeeming work in terms of his suffering instead of just his dying or his crucifixion. He talks about, he emphasizes the suffering that Christ went through on his way to the cross. Uh, which at the same time serves as the example to be followed. All of which is enabled by the Spirit. All of this is said over and over again with obvious interest in encouraging and reassuring them. So even though nobody likes to talk about suffering, even though nobody likes to talk about persecution, certainly nobody likes to go through it, there is encouragement and hope. And he's saying that your suffering is not in vain. It's connecting you even more to Jesus it's even fulfilling the purposes of God on the earth. Now, how is suffering fulfilling God's purposes for the church on the earth? Because they get to be an example to their persecutors. Because they get to preach Christ to those who are hostile to them. That through their life and their example and how they endure suffering and the attitude that they show, they're being lights for Christ. You know, I've had over 17, 18 years of ministry, I've had people come up, you know, pray, pray that I find a job that, that's, that and everybody's a Christian. Pray that I find a good job with everybody there's as Christians. And I was like, if all the Christians work with other Christians, what influence would we have on those who are non-Christians? You know, sometimes as uncomfortable as it is, sometimes maybe God has put you around non-Christians for a reason and for a purpose. And, uh, but I, and I understand it. Trust me. I understand it. You know, but I tell you what, after my first few years of pastoring, I was praying, God, deliver me from church people. Deliver me from Christians. <laughs> Give me some sinners. <laughs> so it's all in the context. It's all in the context. But you have to learn to love everybody. Let me just say, you have to learn to love everybody. But that's the purpose. So if you say, God, I don't understand why you have me here. It may be because God's placed you there to be a light. God's placed you there in the midst, even in difficult times. And I understand, and I always pray, God, give me the good times. God, let everything work out smooth. God, let me have no problems and troubles. You know, that's, that's how we inherently pray. But sometimes that's not God's will because God has a special purpose for you. And to me, I find that encouraging because God thinks enough of you and your witness to put you in front of others who you can influence. That's how much God thinks about us when he places us in those situations because he's called us and equipped us you know, to be a light to somebody else. And if God's trusting me to do that, I consider that an honor, you know, for God to do that, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable. So even in the midst of suffering, there is encouragement that they're still fulfilling God's will on a, on a larger scale. But ultimately, there is hope. Ultimately, there is a, a future victory for all of those who are suffering for Jesus. You know, and ultimately, that's what even the whole book of Revelation is about, that the, the lamb became a lion through the lamb's death, and that, and that the vindication of those who were suffering, that their voices would be vindicated, and God would give them the ultimate victory of ruling and reigning with Christ in heaven. 
So we see all these pictures of, of suffering, but yet the suffering is not the end. This life is not the end, and there's a great promise for the future. So uh, the higher purpose is for their suffering. Um, at the same time, Peter's greatly concerned about the way they live, both their conduct as a people together and the way they respond to suffering. Uh, he reminds them that they are a pilgrim people, strangers and foreigners here on the earth, whose inheritance is in heaven, and they should live the life of heaven in their sojourn on the earth. We should live the life, I love that, we should live the life of heaven while we are journeying through the earth. And second, by living in this way, they will serve as God's priestly people for the sake of the pagans who are hostile to them so that they may be won over. Thus his readers are to fulfill their calling where Israel failed, the church is to fulfill their calling, to be a blessing to the nations. At the end, there is not a thing in this letter that does not have these ends in mind. Be looking for them as you read them. So that'll give you a good introduction to get you started in reading through 1 Peter this week. Uh, so keep all those themes in mind, and then uh, next Wednesday we'll get back together and we'll uh, go chapter by chapter and dig into 1 Peter. Any